Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You a Robot? This is a series where we aim to tackle some of the greatest challenges and questions that we have when it comes to AI and related technologies. The way that we're doing that is by getting some of the best and the brightest minds in the respective fields to come on here and talk with myself about what they're doing, what kind of obstacles they see within the spaces that they play in, and if there's any best practices that we can take away from it as a collective community. Speaking of community, we have got an excellent Slack workspace that continues all of these conversations that you hear on the podcast, videocast episodes. So if you like anything that you hear and you want to talk about it more, jump into the Slack community that you can find the link of below and introduce yourself. Let us know what you're working on. We'd love to chat with you and hear how you view the state of the world and what you're particularly interested when it comes to AI ethics, data governance, all of these related technologies. So last but not least, this episode is brought to you by Ethics Grade. If you have listened to us before, you know they've been a sponsor since way back when. And they now have launched their data set. So just let me back up for a moment. If you do not know what Ethics Grade does, they are a company that rates other companies on a few different criterias, such as AI ethics, data governance. It's really fascinating to see the scorecards that they produce and they freely give out on the internet, just check out their website, to get a better view of what different companies are doing when it comes to this space. I highly encourage you to check out these different benchmarks or the rating scorecards that they have produced so you can see where different companies add up, not only against each other, but in the greater scheme of things. Go check out the website. It's ethicsgrade.io. You can also find a link to that in the description below. And without further ado, let's talk with Fiona. This was an amazing conversation around data quality. And we really got into it. Data quality is so important for so many things, as you will hear. Fiona helped me understand that. There's also an important Google paper that we talked about quite a bit in this episode, which you can find a link to below. And of course, if you like what Fiona is doing, check out more on her by following the links below. That's all we've got. Let's hear what Fiona has to say. Are you a robot? Excellent. So I think we should probably start by hearing a little bit of background information on yourself and how you got into data science and ML. Um, sure. So my background's um, firmly within the, the, the technology side. Uh, I have a degree in computer science and um, a PhD in applied machine learning, where we were looking at um, integrating diverse biological omic data together um, for the prediction of, of, of protein-protein interactions. Um, my career is not necessarily a, a linear um, path. So uh, my background's both in uh, academia and in, in industry. So from industry, uh, I was a, a web developer at Intel and um, a design company called Design by Front and also a senior um, software developer at a company called Path Excel, who specialized in virtual microscopy. And I think what's interesting from, from industry, this is where you really learn your trade. You learn how to program and you learn how to program at, at a production level. And all those good practices from software development in terms of 
uh, testing, um, coding practices, agile development, um, and, and so on. I really got those skills um, from the industrial side. Um, from the academic side, it's it's very much applied AI, which I'm really, really interested in. Uh, and that's been applying um, evidential reasoning to help make decisions whenever you have data, which is really messy. It's conflicting with, with one another, but yet you need to make a decision from it. Um, and we did some work around that um, using Dempster Schaefer in the aerospace um, domain. And another area of research which I'm really into is networks and multiplex networks and using networks to integrate um, diverse data together. So going back to the PhD work, um, my time at uh, as a lecturer at university, we were integrating together um, omic data for um, disease prediction using, using networks. And... What I really like is when when disciplines combine. So it's it's whenever um, computing combines with biology, medicine, um, aerodynamics, and so on. I think that's where where the, where the magic um, really 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 happens. And then I suppose what underpins everything is um, is having that rigor in developing systems especially machine learning systems and um, and the importance that data plays in that that process as 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 well. So let's talk for a little bit about the quality of data and how important that is. And I think people are starting to wake up to that right now, especially because as you I'm sure are well aware, uh, who is it, Andrew Nyeg, went on and he talked about how important it is in machine learning. And then everyone said, yeah, it's incredible. It's so important. And so I think a lot of eyeballs turned to the data quality issues that we have. And so I'm wondering, in your experience, and I really love what you talked about with your experience, taking like the best of in the industry and figuring out how to really get those best practices in operationalizing and productionizing and then also taking this academic point of view and and then finding those places where different worlds collide so that you can create something new. Uh, but when we come to data quality that you speak of, what are some ways that we can apply rigor to the data process? Yeah, so um, super, super question, um, Demetrius. And um, I agree. I'm a big fan of of Andrew Ng, and um, I, I I love the fact that he's come out and has said we need to be more data centric and and less model centric. And I don't know if you've seen the recent paper by Google as well, which um, it it says everybody wants to do the model work and not so and not good. and not the data work. And it's not often you get really excited about an academic paper, but whenever I seen that come out, it was like excellent. This is <laughs> this is what we've been trying to to to, to say for um for 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 a long a long time. Um, because up to now, it really has been, you know, the big, the big deep learning models, which are the star of, of, of the show. So everybody wants to talk about Google's BERT or OpenAI's GGBT3 um, and, and not so much on, 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 on the data side. Um, and in the recent Google paper, I loved the way they phrased it in that they had said that the data side is viewed as unglamorous and um, and because of this it's it's under is undervalued work. Um, and if I can quote from the paper because they've, they've um, succinctly said this so well, is that the data largely determines your performance, the fairness, robustness, safety, and the scalability of AI systems. Yet, um, in most organizations and practices, um, fail to meet um, basic data quality um, standards with a focus instead on, um, 
on, on, on the model side. And I think by taking a look at um, data management, um, standards, um, reproducibility, traceability of that through the process, um, you're going to build, you're going to have better performance from your models. And actually also from, from a broader point of view as well, it's, it's, it's understanding the impact that your models have on the people who are using them and the the society in which in which they're being um, uh, applied as as well. So, I'm really excited to see a light shone um, on on this area, and um, and it's an important part of the ML ops process. And um, I know you're a big champion of of that as well, Demetrius. So, um, I think they go they go hand hand in hand. Yeah, completely. And that paper is fascinating to me. I love what you mentioned there about it's the unglamorous part. And then they also talk about how the part of or the people that are doing the job of labeling and and um, and categorizing the data, they are severely underpaid when you compare them to a data scientist who is doing the modeling. And they also bring up a point that I think is fascinating. And I'd love to just get into this paper real deep with you if it's all right, because I'm glad you brought it up. And I think it's an incredible paper. The thing that they brought up that I thought was fascinating was that data is never raw. And maybe you can go into that a little more. I mean, it seems like even before we collect the data, us deciding what data is important and us deciding how much of that data we need and what we're measuring it in, all of a sudden now it's tainted with our biases before we've even gone out and collected it. So them talking about how the data is never raw was an eye-opener for me. Yeah, exactly, and um, and and that leads also to this need for diversity in teams who who are building these systems and also collating um, the, the the data then as 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 well. So it's 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 having that um, focus or even documentation as to. Um, as to why you're going to, you're, you have to go out, you have to create um, a data set. Um, what, what values are you going to measure and why? Um, how much are you going to collate for it? And um, is it representative of the problem that you are, are trying to, um, to, to, to model further, further down the line? And what's interesting, so this paper talked about high stakes AI. So AI that's used in the medical domain or um, prediction of whether somebody gets a loan or, or not. And what was particularly interesting from the medical domain is that um, it, it, it was the, the lack of value placed on um, practitioners who were gathering that data at the coal face as such. So for example, within a hospital setting, it was um, asking um, nurses, doctors, on top of everything you already do, collect all this data, please. Um, and then maybe without uh, the focus on having um, very specific, detailed um, uh, approach to how <laughs> to collect this data to ensure that there is consistency in in the process so so that's that's that that's the first side and then the second side that comes up as well and you've talked about Demetrius is is the labeling of data sets which is also a very important task um, and a task that is often outsourced and and not given particular value um, associated um, to it. So this is this is a time-consuming, laborious task. And I think whenever we're talking about labeling of, of data sets, I don't really hear it talked about that much in the the, the general ML um, side um, of it. Yet um, within this paper, uh, the, the research of 
Ertz has said that between 25 to 60% of the overall cost of a machine learning project is actually at the, the labeling phase. Um, so, so why don't we focus a bit more um, on this? And then as um, the Andrew Ng has said in the um, Ticket and Model Centric view, um, he also went back to the labeling side as, as well of data sets and ensuring that there's consistency in the labels um, uh, applied as this can have uh, a direct impact on the predictions made by the model further downstream. And he actually used a really nice use case and it was, it was detecting defects on steel, I think, rolls. And um, it, it, show, it was like, it showed the case where, okay, let's focus on the model side and tweak the hyperparameters and see how we can improve the um, performance and marginal gains. Whereas going back to the data, looking at the consistency of the data, the quality of the data, the consistency of the labels and fixing those noisy labels, they were able to, um, I think, increase from a, a baseline of 73 to up to, to 90% um, accuracy, just looking at, at, at the data alone. And I love that because it's a very sure. clear example of, you know, <laughs> just go back and, 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 and fix your data. Um, and I think it, it also talks to, you know, AI isn't magic. <laughs> it needs it needs good quality data to 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 learn from um and to identify patterns um from and I definitely do see that coming through more and more now. Even researchers mm. in the medical domain going back to data sets which are used to, you know, big open data sets used to train lots of models, yeah. going back, looking at the consistency of the labels and and, and fixing them um, uh, again. Yeah, and what you're talking about, it reminds me of all of the drama and controversy that happened around the open AI GTP3 or GPT. I can't remember which one it is ever, but I think people know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> and the uh, inability for it to say anything without violence when it came to talking about Muslims. And there was all of this controversy about how just uh, openly biased it was and, and, um, and racist in a way. So that like you said, it all comes back to the data. And there's so much that we have so many cliches around that, right? Like that we've heard a million times and everyone likes to talk about it, especially in machine learning. The ones who are the machine learning engineers or the data scientists, they will tout all day long, garbage in, garbage out. Or you will see people posting about it continuously on LinkedIn that, well, a data scientist's primary time or the data scientist, 80% of a data scientist's time is taken up cleaning the data and labeling the data and doing stuff with the data. And what you mentioned and the paper also mentioned, which is so important, is that it's like they have to speed through that part and that just sets them up for failure because it's not seen as an essential part so then you have to go through it really fast just so you can get to the modeling. And then you're trying to do something yeah. with the modeling. And, and like you mentioned before, you're trying to create magic, but your foundation isn't there. So it really shows the importance yeah. of that. Now, I wanted to ask you about the idea that this paper brings forth, which is like the cascades. And maybe you can explain to myself and the listeners, what exactly that is, what they were talking about when they were saying the cascades. Yeah, so it was, yeah, it was about the, for high um, importance or um, high risk AI, high um, having poor data quality at the start really has a knock-on effect from everything in, in, in down downstream um, analysis and and actually one of the examples that they had used for this was the um, 
IB, IBM um, Watson Oncology. So the idea of, of data cascades in that particular example was um, a lot of, there was a lot of hype around um, this IBM Watson Oncology um, with the, um, in, in, in predicting um, outcomes for um, cancer. So it had learned from, well, it, it should have learned from um, patient data and so on and, and provide um, information to clinicians on treatments and, and, and so on. Uh, but at the start of the process, the, the data gathered was, was data that was um, representative of patients as opposed to actual real patients' um, data. And whenever it was applied in a clinical setting, it was giving completely um, erroneous and, and, and dangerous um, predictions, which had an impact on people and on people's health. And if there wasn't a human in the loop to address it there, um, it, you could have been getting wrong, wrong, wrong treatment. So that really shows the, the cascade from the, I suppose, not enough um, effort put into the, the data at, at start and then the impact that that actually has in a person um, down, down, downstream. And I think for that particular example, it, it wasn't just the data side of it. It was like, how, how did this get out the door <laughs> and put into a clinical practice and only be picked up at that stage? Um, and where where was you know the AI framework around it? Where was the testing around it? Uh, it's 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 that whole system view um, approach, and mm. you know with the same thing with the Open um, AI GPT three, whenever it was released and used, why is it only then that um, these particular issues are being are being picked up? Um, Instead, we should have a more robust system that is looking for, you know, it's, it's looking for bias, it's testing for it. Um, it's looking at the system as, 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 as a whole. It's not relying on a, a data engineer, an ML engineer, randomly picking up an error, um, that there's a systematic process there. So whenever it is out, um, in production that you have caught um, hopefully most most of these serious um, issues. And I suppose that's due to a rather nascent um, stage of, of, of ML ops at, yeah. at the minute. And it's really interesting and, and um, it's really interesting to see it mature as well. Just like software development has been maturing over the past 30 years, we're, we're hopefully going to see that now with, with, with our ML ops side of it. Yeah, that's such a great point that you make. And it comes back to the diversity involved and looking at it as a system. Uh, someone that I interviewed a few weeks ago, Chris Berg, who's the CEO of a company called Data Kitchen, he was talking about how, and this fits in directly to what you're saying, is how everyone who is working in the machine learning process or AI on data products, basically, they are responsible for the results, not just the piece that they've done. Because otherwise, it's very easy to pass the buck and say, oh, well, I just created the model, but I wasn't the one who had to figure out the bias involved, right? Or I just uh, set up the pipeline. I wasn't the one who was creating the model that was biased. And so then everybody can stand off and say, well, it wasn't my fault. But when you're looking at it like that, with that systems approach and saying, hey, you're responsible for the result, then everyone takes ownership and they take more accountability for it. And I think what you're talking about when it comes to the, sorry, my daughter just walked in in case you can hear that. Um, oh, that's lovely. <laughs> where was I? What you were talking about with, with the systems approach and being able to look at it in a holistic way 
and trying to spot things before they're out in production. This is, I'm just going to quote from another person I interviewed two weeks ago, Alfredo, who was talking about this testing part. And in his mind, he felt like you can never write enough tests. And what he was a big proponent of was you want to catch something as early as possible because the closer that you catch it to production, then the more expensive it is going to be. And catch it while it's in production, then it's going to be expensive because of the reputation that you just destroyed or because of the trust that you just lost on top of all of the resources that you have to deploy when you go back and you try and fix that problem. But it seems like right now the mantra for us, sadly, and it's probably because it's so new still, but it seems like the, the mantra that we keep asking ourselves is how did that get put out into production? And so it really is that moment that we're at right now. And like you said, it's, it could be just because it's such a nascent, it's, it's so new that we don't have the grasp on what needs to be done and how to write tests and how to properly analyze the data or even focus on the data. I think that might be something that we can talk about too, is mm-hmm. how can we put more focus on the data besides just having people like Andrew come out and talk about how important it is. Yeah, and and I think we need to be able to shift the the conversation from yeah, as as you said, Demetrius, there's the we spend 80% of our time with the data. Haha, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's get to the bottle part. Um, you know, why 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 don't we say okay, 80% of our time is spent in the data. How come how, how, how can we actually apply machine learning to make our lives easier at 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 this stage? Um, we know that it's it's not it's not easy it's not easy work. Um, so that's that's make this an impo- you know an important part of our 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 work, and that probably involves um, education and communication across all different um, levels within either um, a, a company or within within academia as 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 well and actually this is this is what we focus on um, in 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 our work is okay how can we improve um, the manual processes around data and 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 data quality so We've been looking at things such as um, labeling labeling data sets and how, how to make this more um, systematic. Um, I don't know if you've ever had to label a data set before, Demetrius. Um, you you might have got away with, yeah. with, with that task. <laughs> Just give it to the intern. Well, let no. me... <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Myself and my team were involved last summer in, in labeling a data set for one of our entity matching um, models. And let me tell you, it is, it's a really boring, it's a really boring process. And um, you just don't want to do it. You just want to get on to something else. And that's where mistakes come in. And you really do need a specific outline um, to say, why, why you you know why, why you label something a particular way so we were labeling um was an, an entity a match or 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 not um so machine learning can be applied there so instead of um, a subject matter expert labeling 10,000 um, examples or instances for 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 the data set um Let's use active learning or pseudo learning to prioritize those real tricky edge cases that um, a classifier has has difficulty difficulty with. So that's one way that you know you can apply um, machine learning, and you're reducing that volume of of manual review for um, a, a reviewer. And then you can employ really simple techniques such as 
okay, you've so human and lips really important for for us and the work and work that we do um, for informing our models and providing context um, for for our models as well. So we capture information as to, okay, you've labeled this in a particular way. Can you tell me why you labeled it in this particular way? And documenting that and capturing that information is really important in terms of traceability and also um, explainability further downstream whenever your models are, 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 are making predictions. So it's bringing in that good practice uh, in terms of um, documenting as 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 you go along and then you can apply data quality metrics to um, a data set that you've constructed and labeled so you can perform checks such as consistency um is it valid and 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 so on and um through to okay looking at the label cases if uh, we're doing supervised learning um maybe looking at things such as measuring fairness and bias, which I know are very hot um, topics uh, at, at, at the moment. So doing simple checks as to, um, you know, is, 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 is this a representative um, data set? Is it a balanced um, data set? So we know how that can have a knock-on effect in some um, classifiers. Uh, you can measure the consistency of the labels as, as well. And and having that, those uh, metrics provided to you will help you go back because it's an iterative process and maybe, you know, focus on um, improving the consistency of the labels or identifying at an early stage, do you know what, I, I don't have a representative um, example here. In fact, I've got a data desert for a particular cohort, which are not represented at all within this data set. I need to go back and 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 fix this again. And we we are seeing that coming through within industry. So um, IBM have uh, Fair AI three sixty, where um, it's proposes uh, a number of approaches to test if your systems. Um, fair or where um, identifying unintentional biases uh, and unintentional consequences um, of, 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 of your system. So maybe having labels such as age um, and race um, and, and so on um, as labels within your data set and then being able to, to test a model's performance against that. So you're, cap you're capturing this at that stage as opposed to out, um, out, 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 out in the field. Um, and I know there's a lot of work being done around this area because even defining what is fair and what bias looks like is still in its 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 early stages. Um, but yeah. at least we're thinking about this now, and 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 we're, and we're trying it out, and we will have to keep keep learning as 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 well. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because we had Shay Brown on here, who is an algorithm or AI, he audits AI systems and machine learning systems. And the first question I asked him when he came on here, I said, do you think that your job is going to be ever outsourced to a machine learning algorithm that is able to audit itself, basically? And he said, well, right now, it's really mm -hmm. hard to say even what we like we don't have the process in place. It's so complex that if we as humans don't even know how to do it, how can we outsource it to a machine at this moment? And there are a few things that you mentioned before that I, uh, I just wanted to get your clarification on because I think they all fly together and they're a little more technical, but it is important for people if they're listening and they were wondering what does that mean there was something you talked about supervised learning and then there's uh human in the loop these are just some some terms that maybe you can explain to us what they mean and then explainability i think those all those three kind of fit together and they are mm -hmm. important to understand for this greater conversation that we're having 
Yeah, sure. No, no, no problem, Demetrius. Um, so this is nice. I get to put my lecture hat back on again <laughs> and talk about supervised and unsupervised um, learning. Yeah. So yeah, th so there's there's different machine learning um, approaches. You can have supervised learning, unsupervised learning. There's semi-supervised learning, um, reinforcement learning. Um, and uh, for, for supervised learning, whenever we're talking about that, uh, we're talking about a model that learns from, from labeled um, examples. So for example, say you've got a piece of text, um, does this have a positive sentiment or negative sentiment? And uh, you provide the labels and the model um, then learns patterns um, from uh, the your features uh, and it uses this information to um, basically discriminate between um, the classes that it's that it's trying to um, predict and then this differs then uh, from unsupervised learning so you may not have uh, a labeled data set um, in that case you could use unsupervised learning uh, where you are trying to maybe identify clusters or, or groups um, of, of of data that um, that, that 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 are found um, to, together. So, uh, for example, in 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 marketing, um, maybe certain types of you know cl uh, clusters which represent people who represent like different things that you're trying to 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 sell. Um, and unsupervised and learning. Correct me if I'm wrong also really popular with games like if you give a machine learning algorithm a, a car that it has to drive and it has to get to from a to b and then you just let it go and let it learn teach itself basically is is how it works if i'm not mistaken yes so yeah so um I that would probably fall under the uh, reinforcement um, learning. So uh, yeah, it's really a really nice way to explain that is like 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 a kid beginning to 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 learn. So um, I've got two boys; they had to learn to walk <laughs> as 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 babies, and it's basically trial and error, working out, um, you know, moving from, 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 from A, A, A to B and what works and what, and what doesn't, and what doesn't work. So yeah, that the area of reinforcement learning is really getting traction, um, at, at a present in, in, in ML, which is really super interesting as, as, as well. That's essentially where you, you have a human to help, um, direct your, your, your machine learning. And an example of that uh, in, in our work is in our entity, entity matching. So entities can be people, they can be um, places, they can be corporations. And, um, and one of the problems that uh, we undertake for our clients is, is matching entities together to give a, a single view. Um, and what our model does is that uh, it tries to predict um, is this entity um, the same as, as this entity? So for example, Demetrius, you could hold um, a number of, of different bank accounts, um, but you could have a different address because maybe one of your addresses was outdated and you're trying to figure out, is this you or is this somebody completely different? So we have a model that um, has a number of match um, features that it uses to make a prediction. And then it provides to a subject matter expert, hey, I think this is a, a match here. Do you agree with this or not? Um, and what we're doing is that we're capturing uh, the, the subject matter's expertise um, as to whether or not it's it's a true match or it's 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 a false prediction, so we're using their expertise um, to add to our training data, so then we can retrain um, our, our our model again then based based um, on on that. So it's a little pulse check to make sure that um, what is being predicted is actually um, accurate uh, as as well. So. Over oversight of humans um, within within the system. 
Oh, and the third one was explainability. <laughs> so, yeah, th this is um, a, a, a really hot topic um, at, at the moment in terms of um, explainable AI. Um, how is that related to transparency in, in the processes as, as well? So explainability can mean different things to, to, to different people. So um, explainability to a data science machine learning engineer could be very different to explainability to um, a person who's getting a prediction at the end of, 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 of a system. But yet it's still, it's still very important. So we want to explain um, why uh, a model made a particular um, prediction. And there's, there's different techniques that can be um, used to, to do this. So you could have a very simple model like a decision tree or um, a linear regression model. And these are known as um, transparent models because we can see we can see from data being input to how it was a uh, prediction was 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 output. Um, we can see how how that happens. Um, you have models such as deep learning neural networks where you really don't have a clue. <laughs> no, no idea what's happening in there. There's synapses firing. Don't have a clue what these um, activation functions are are, are doing. Um, but I get a result at 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 the end. Um, but there are ways to probe these systems um, to, to help us explain why a particular prediction was, was made. So we have things um, such as using like SHAP values um, and um, LIME, and let me get the nice definition of um, LIME here. Because <laughs> uh, it's, it's, very, it's very good at um, sort of giving you an idea of um, what what features drove a prediction so um you might be able to open the box completely but you can give it um uh, a push to say okay at a local level what were the features that particularly drove this um prediction so lime is local interpretable model agnostic explanations you can see why they've shortened it to <laughs> to to lime um um, and what it does, it it sort of gives us an idea on on, on feature uh, importance. So, for example, say you've got a, a model that's um, predicting a particular outcome, and um, postcode is is one of the you know the key features driving that prediction. You, as a, a human subject matter expert, can say actually no, that's that's that that feature should not be driving the prediction within this model so it gives you an idea of of of, of what's happening in there and and maybe where spurious correlations are are, are happening then uh, as as well and then you've got explainability in terms of um what what's happened the whole way through the the process here so um What's the provenance of my data set? Where did it come from? What version is it? Um, how was it made up? Um, can you give me some information about, you know, metrics around um, fairness, bias, representation, and, and so on, where it was tested, um, through to how was the model built? Um, what was it trained on? What's the size of the um, data set that it was trained on? Um, and uh, what... Um, level of um, performance does it get at um, at at the end and so on so it's 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 explainability from 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 different um, uh, approaches and that there are there's lots of techniques out there to help us with that it's still quite a new um, field and um, yeah I think it's it's really been talked about and pushed on um, with the area of AI ethics and um, explainability of, 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 of models. Um, because if you're refused alone, you want to know why you've been refused alone. And if we look at current approaches, um, if, if you're refused alone, you'll get information as to why you're ref refused alone and what factors 
you were refused a loan on. So it's building that explainability and transparency then into the into the process. Completely. And this is where we hear a bit about the black boxes that this algorithm or this model is just making predictions, but we have no idea why. And we're really trying to get away from that because it is so dangerous and it is so detrimental, especially when we're talking about high stakes machine learning. And if a model can't tell you why it's making its predictions, then you have to blindly trust it or throw it out. And it's not an ideal situation. Uh, so there was something that you said that I thought was fascinating a few questions ago. And thank you for explaining all of this. To me, it's also very helpful just to hear it. And I, I learned something there too. So the thing you said though that I found very interesting was when you mentioned data deserts. And you were talking about trying to get machine learning to look at or label different data sets so that it takes the brunt off of the humans. And you also said that sometimes you may have just slices or whole sets of data that, or whole sets of, of people or whatever it is that is included in the data set that's not there. And it's a data desert. And maybe you can talk about the data deserts a little bit more. And then also, have you seen applications or programs or tools that help you identify those data deserts? Is that what the IBM tool you were talking about with the fairness, does that, is that part of it? Yeah, so... The data desert's really, really interesting. So it's it's either a, a data set where uh, data about maybe a particular subset of the population just hasn't even been considered or encoded um, within the set, or it may be um, a, a, a particular um, problem area which you're trying to make a prediction on, and there's 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 just no no data there on it, and you have to go out and um and 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 gather that um data. And I think the whole side on the whole representative samples and 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 having having the right data there at 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 the start. Um. Again, it goes back to your your model as a system. But it also goes back to having um, the right people on the team to 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 see this. Um, so, like personally, as a machine learning practitioner, um, I'm not very good at understanding risk from a business point of view. So instead of just me going off by myself trying to work that out. Um, having that cross-disciplinary approach where you have someone who's a specialist in risk knows the business domain or the problem domain that 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 you're in and shines a light um on that um there was a recent article uh, that I that I read in the Financial Times at at the weekend by um an economist Tim Hargrove and um he was talking about groupthink, and um, I, I actually like some of the, the the content in terms of um, you've got a load of smart people in a room, and you still make a, a terrible <laughs> decision. How 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 do you prevent that? I think this is similar to whenever you are constructing your 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 data set. Um, you're very smart people building these processes and models and so on yet we're still making um mistakes how how can we prevent that um and and one of the ways is having a diverse group of people in the room making those decisions as a first one and a second one to have a sort of devil advocates group a challenge group to say okay have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And really push against what's 
what's what's being done. Um, and I think that's maybe one way where we can uh, apply techniques to to improve um, building uh, data sets which are representative and 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 challenging our, ourselves as well. Um, the IBM Fair 360 is a way of looking this at like a systematic metric or uh, yeah metric um, approach. So um, trying to it's very interesting. You're trying to encode um, values programmatically. So it's um, what does fair look like? Um, can 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 we use information um, on um, age, um, gender, and so on? Um, have these as labels and use these to to test to see if our model is being fair to these um, to the different um, subsections in in in, in society. Um, right through to are are these vulnerable groups um, encoded within within your data set, and if not, this is going to have a detrimental impact um, to to them. Uh, a, an example um, which I come into from 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 time to time is um, is voice recognition systems. And um, this has been backed up um, from with, with research uh, from Washington um, University. So they did a study, it was a while back now, it was 20, I think 2016, 2017, uh, where they were basically come to the conclusion that, um, you know, if, 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 if you're a male, you're 70% more likely to be understood by a voice recognition um, system. And it's a double whammy for me because number one, the real thick Northern Irish accent, <laughs> and number two, um, a female accent as as well. You know, not a hope of any system understanding what what I'm saying, and um, it it all comes back to the data that's being collated, the data that the model has been um, trained on, um, and then also, I suppose. Um, the cleanliness of, of, of the data. So often you're training data. Um, it's it's very good, high quality data, and it 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 might miss, you know, common um, noises uh, that are uh, in in normal day 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 to day lives. So, um, so I, I don't know if I've covered that um, off, but uh, it's. It's it's a very interesting one and one that I hit every day, essentially, whenever I'm <laughs> trying to ask for, for music to come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny you should mention that too. We had a man named Lewis Bird on the first season of this podcast and he was talking about how he wasn't understood by his voice assistant. I think it was Brigsby, the Samsung one that he was using. And he was saying that he realized after his wife spoke to the voice assistant at some point that if he changed his voice and he put on what he called his white voice, then the voice assistant understood him impeccably. But if he just spoke like normal... <laughs> it didn't pick up half of the things that he was trying to say. So uh, I feel for you. Maybe you have to put on your American accent and speak in a little bit deeper of a voice and you'll be better understood. <laughs> but Yeah, I'll, I'll, tr I'll try that yeah. after this to see how far, <laughs> how far I get. Exactly. But there's something else that I wanted to bring up that I think is really important to mention when we are talking about this data quality and and then the implications that it has throughout the life cycle of machine learning and AI products and data products in general. And this comes from the article we were talking about earlier on how really when you look at this model-centric view and you're looking at everything like the model is the star player of the AI product or the machine learning product, then what they have been doing and what you see when it's very high stakes is the model accuracy is something that they need to really make sure that 
they have within 1% or sorry, it's like 99% model accuracy, right? They can't have a 1% variability or more than 1% because you're looking at someone's, the example they used in the paper was you're trying to determine if someone has retina cancer and if the model says they don't, and then later it is true that they do, they go blind and it's very harmful and it has very impacting events. And we've mentioned many of them, right? Like if you're asking for a loan or like we've seen in, I think it's Florida where they're deciding who gets out on bail or who, how long someone goes to jail for. Mm -hmm. These are high impact situations and high stakes ML. And the point that they make in the paper, which I think is really important to highlight, is that when you're looking at it through a model-centric viewpoint, there's a tendency to cut corners on that model and making it be 1% or sorry, 99% accurate because the data, so it's like if the data isn't the best, but you get 1%, 99%, I don't know why I keep saying 1%, but if the data isn't the best data and the highest quality, and then you get this 99%, the problem there is that it doesn't matter because the data that you've done all of this hard work on or that isn't properly cleansed or isn't the highest quality, it's like you're cutting corners. I'm not sure if this is making sense to anybody but myself, but I think the idea here that I, I really wanted to get out is that we have to be very, very rigorous with the data because of all the implications downstream. And when we're looking at creating this model and then you have something that goes out into production and you think it is 99% accurate and really you're highly mistaken. Yeah, and I think this is the crux of, of, of that paper is that, um, and, and that cascade effect um, uh, as, as well, Demetrius. So having that, that data quality, a high data quality that goes through all of your model process. Um, coupling that with um, your testing, coupling that with um, your ownership as 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 well, um, ensuring that um, you have uh, ad ad adhere to 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 regulations, especially uh, in in areas which are highly regulated, like um, health and 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 finance and and so on that you've got all that right before you make predictions which will have a direct impact on a person's life at the end of the process. And it's really important for us not to lose sight of that. And I think we're seeing that impetus being brought in now. So we're saying, because at the moment, what's what's right? What's what's driving us to, to do all this hard work on the rigor and the data quality side. Um, well, now we're seeing regulations coming in. So in, in our area, we're in, in, in finance. So BCBS um, 239 is in and it's saying to the financial institution, you need to have good data quality here or else I'm going to slap you with a fine. So, so that's one impetus. Um, then uh, another one is... Um, reputational damage and trust, which you've already touched on uh, as as well. And then the third one is is law. So you get this wrong. There, 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 there is lawful um, implications here as as well. And this is where we need um, regulators and and lawmakers within this 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 process. And I know it's so difficult because it's new. And we're still learning, and technology is 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 change, changing. But we need to do we need to do something. And um, I know that there's new uh, draft g 
guidelines and a law from the EU side on um, AI. And it's quite interesting because they're coming at it from a human-centric point of view and from a risk point of, of, of view as, as, as well. So um, it'll be interesting to see how, how that um, evolves. And um, I was listening to some of your previous podcasts and you've had some great experts on talking about, about that um, specifically. Yeah, it's interesting that you highlight that from it's looking at it from a human centric perspective and a risk centric perspective, but not from the the data centric perspective or the model centric. And so this has been an excellent conversation, Fiona. I could continue talking with you for hours on end and especially about the data quality, which I know is such an important piece. And it is a little bit, it has a crossover with the ethics and the technical folks. And I think it is one of those pieces that it's easier for those who aren't as technical to understand in a way that makes sense. You don't have to know crazy math to be able to know that if you're collecting good data and then you're using that and you're cleaning it and you're doing the right things to it, it is going to have major implications and it is going to be hugely beneficial and likewise vice versa. So I have one last question for you as you've listened to other episodes, you probably know what's coming now. Fiona, are you a robot? <laughs> well, certainly not. <laughs> uh, but uh, but thank you so much, Demetrius. Uh, I've really really enjoyed our, our our conversation today, and um, great respect to the work um, that this podcast did, and also your your work on the ML ops side as 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 well. Oh, thank you, Fiona. Have a great day, and we will see everyone in the next episode. Take care.